I want to preach for a little while this morning a message I'm calling God's Gushing Love. The inspiration for this message comes out of Romans chapter 5, and in particular verse 5, and I'll work my way into that in just a few minutes. The drawing force I find for me to the book of Romans are the incontrovertible truths that I find there about the grace of God and the righteousness of God and the justification of God and the gifts of God. Romans chapter 5 is just chock full of all those wonderful truths. I've said before and I'll say it again, I believe that Jason Gray's song, Remind Me Who I Am, says it better than I can articulate it. He says, when I lose my way and I forget my name, remind me who I am. That's what the book of Romans does. In the mirror, all I see is who I don't want to be. Remind me who I am. That's what Romans does. In the loneliest places, when I can't remember what grace is, tell me once again who I am to you. Who I am to you. Tell me lest I forget who I am to you. And that's what Romans does. In particular, chapters 3 through chapter 8 will remind you over and over again about the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord. And it reminds you of who you are. Not that the object of my thoughts are just me. <laughs> they're, they're Christ. But when I see a picture of Christ and I realize I live in Christ, then I do see a picture of me. And it's healthy to see the right picture of you. That's what allows us to go on mission trips like we just went on and come back. And while we're on that mission trip, just it's all about revealing Christ. We know that Christ lives in us, and we know that every time we open our mouth, He's going to come out. And that's what makes it exciting. That's what makes it fun, is that you don't even know what He's up to before you go, and you just see different things develop as you go. Jason Gray says, when my heart is like a stone and I'm running far from home, remind me who I am. I know people that have served the Lord with all their heart. And then something happened, it just damaged them somehow. They got wounded somehow in the church, and, and they went away from the, the church, and they, they pulled away from Christ. I want to tell you something. He never forgets who you are. He never forgets who we are. And that's, again, what the book of Romans does. It keeps reminding us who we are in Christ, that He lives inside of us. I saw something on the Internet uh, here, oh, it was a couple of weeks ago, this little girl called Heavenly Joy. She was on the show called America's Got Talent. Isn't that an awesome name? Her name is Heavenly, and her middle name is Joy. I mean, just that alone. But she's just a, a darling of a girl. She's five years old. She sounds like she's been singing for 10 or 15 years. And if you know anything about America's Got Talent, you've got four judges that you've got to impress. And so she stands before the four judges and this large audience of, of people, and they're just going crazy because she's dressed so cute, got the cute hair, everything's going on with heavenly joy. And finally she opens her mouth and starts singing. You're like, whoa, <laughs> wow, where'd you get this at? It's the anointing of God at a young age, like the, the prophet Samuel. Everybody is just moved by this little girl. And when they're done, the, the judges have to critique them. And of course it starts with the first guy, Howard Stern. Howard Stern says, heavenly, that was absolutely heavenly. She's just smiling, taking it all in with grace. He says, wow, you can really sing good. He said, you know, heavenly, when I was a little boy, he said, I used to watch Shirley Temple. You ever heard of Shirley Temple? She said, yes. He said, have you ever watched her? Have you ever listened to her sing? Yes. He said, do you think it's possible, heavenly, that Shirley Temple lives on the inside of you? 
just like that. She said, not Shirley Temple, it's Jesus. <laughs> Five years old. Oh, it's an amazing video to watch. Friends, the object of our praise is Christ. And when you realize and you get this message down, he lives in me. He is in me everywhere I go. He is in me. And then when you get this revelation of righteousness, salvation by righteousness, be bold, step out. You know, when we were at that restaurant, the first or second night we were down in Kentucky, that's all we did is we were just bold. We stepped out and started ministering to the waitress. You know, I almost found that she was neglecting other tables just to get back to our table because we were loving her. Friends, I want to tell you something. The book of Romans puts me in remembrance of God's faithfulness, God's goodness, and His love and His grace. And I just can't quit thinking about my Papa. I call Him Papa. It's okay to call Him that because the Bible calls Him that when it uses the word Abba. <laughs> Abba, Abba, Abba. And if you go to Israel, I've never been there, but I've heard this, that the little children run around always yelling Abba. If you're in a park or something like that, they're yelling for their daddies. They're always saying Abba, Abba, Abba. It means Papa. It's okay to call him Papa. We have a Papa in our family. His last name is Biggerstaff. All of his four adult children call him Papa. All the grandchildren call him Papa. All the great-grandchildren call him Papa. He's Papa. In fact, his wife calls him Papa. Everybody calls him Papa. Papa Biggerstaff. I happen to be married to one of his daughters. And I've thought about it over the years because I've watched this family absolutely adore this man. I've watched them love him. I mean, it's just the most amazing thing to see. And I thought, why do they love Papa? I mean, they, they are crazy about this guy. Because Papa never judges. This man, I've watched him. I've been married to his daughter for 50, almost 15 years. I've watched him. All he's in the habit of doing is loving people. His love just keeps gushing and gushing and gushing out. It's the neatest thing in the world to, to see. It doesn't matter if you're in the pasture or you're in the pig pen. His love is always available. And I want to tell you something. That's what draws people. That's what drew us to Christ. It was his love. It's His love for us. No other scripture in the Bible expresses the love of God better than John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I think everybody in here probably could quote that verbatim. But the one that follows it, John 3.17 says, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the whole world would be saved. God sent His Son into the world not to come and judge us, but to come and love us. And there's always been this big push about, we need to get the Ten Commandments back in the classroom at school. No, we don't. Listen to me for a second here. What we need hanging in the classrooms of America is John 3.16 and John 3.17. And I'm going to tell you something, you would change the whole world. Because if you put a bunch of rules on the board, don't do this, don't do this, I'm going to tell you something, they'll be doing it more frequently than if you don't have the rules up there. Because it's our nature to break rules. Papa doesn't condemn us. Papa loves us. And there are just times that I've noticed in the Bible that uh, you see other men want encouragement. We need encouragement. We live in a world that's always trying to beat us down. They try to put labels on us that either misrepresent us or don't represent us in the fullness of who we are. You saw that happen after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. The very next thing in Matthew chapter 4, the Bible says, He was led by the Holy Spirit to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, it says he was hungry. 
And then when the tempter came to him, he said, if you really are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. What did he leave out? Wait a minute, if we rewind the tape and John baptizes Jesus, the Bible says the heavens opened, the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove, and a voice spoke out of heaven, which is the Father, and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now Satan, when he came to Jesus, said, if you are the Son of God, he conveniently left out that word beloved. Because it's counterproductive to remind believers that they are loved by God, that you are his beloved. And he also left out, in whom I am well pleased. Again, counterproductive to tell somebody, you're well pleased in front of the Father. If we mess up in our Christian walk, whatever we do, there's this domino effect. If he can get you to believe because of your performance, you are no longer pleasing to the Father. It doesn't take a giant leap to move you over into Maybe I'm not his beloved anymore either. See, there's this connection. God is always pleased with us. I don't know as though we wrestle with, am I a son? Am I a daughter? What we wrestle with is, am I his beloved? Am I pleasing to my father? Am I pleasing to my papa? In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and we're going to work our way into the fifth verse in just a little bit. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He said we've been justified through faith, and as a result we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word justified is a legal term. You usually hear this word in a courtroom. And so that means there was a legal process to get us justified. And the Bible says since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. All humanity was in the courtroom at one time. It was the same time, and it was for the same crime. Sin against God. And Jesus was in the courtroom, and there was this enormous fine that we couldn't pay. And Jesus said, Daddy, Papa, I will pay their fine. You say, what fine? The fine that you find in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, which says the wages of sin is death. It was that fine. See, we could die for our sins and take an eternity to pay for them, never pay for them, or Jesus could die, and the Bible says He did, and He died once for all. He doesn't have to keep coming back and dying. He died once for all, the Bible says. The word justified literally means to be declared righteous. If you were to ask a thousand believers, what does the word righteous or righteousness mean? Unfortunately, many of them couldn't tell you. They know it's a religious term. They know it's in the Bible. They would say, well, you know, I don't know, something to do with being religious. Listen, Jesus did not come and die on Calvary's cross to make us religious. That's the reason he came, because that's all we were. We were religious and without God, alienated from the cross. And so he came so he could strip away that religion. Oh, if you remember a few months ago, I sang a song to you in here. Give me that old-time religion. Do you remember when I sang that song? Give me that old-time religion. Oh, man, that is the craziest song I have ever heard. It's good enough for me. No, it's not good enough for you, and it wasn't good enough for the people in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament either. It's never been good enough. In fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 14, you see a story of a king. His name is King Asa, A-S-A, King Asa. He takes the throne. He's the king of Judah. And the Bible says he did what's right in the eyes of the Lord. And the first thing he did is he tore down the altars that they were worshiping foreign gods on. 
He smashed the sacred stones and he cut down the Asherah poles and he took them down into the Kidron Valley and he burned them. Because he knew that that kind of religion was idolatry and it wouldn't do. And he wanted to point them to the one and true God. Well, the interesting thing was, is when he inherited the throne, his grandmother was already in position. And he went to his grandmother and he said, Grandma, this stuff that you've got is killing you. This religion stuff that you've got, this is killing you. She wouldn't let go of her Asherah pole. She wouldn't let go of her sacred altars. She wouldn't let go of her sacred stones. And the Bible says that he had to depose Grandma. That means he put her out of office. <laughs> Another way to say that, he just fired Grandma that day. And you know what he said? The Bible says he took all that stuff she was worshiping, all that religious stuff, and he took it down in the Kidron Valley and he burned it up. This is what the message of grace does, is it consumes. It keeps cutting down Asherah poles in our lives that have been erected over the years. It keeps smashing sacred stones and cutting down and breaking down foreign altars. This is what the message of grace does. Jesus came so that he could reveal God's gushing love. That was the reason he came. He came to reveal the heart of the Father, his Papa. The Bible says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Now, I love this because when it says faith, it doesn't say plus. We're talking about justification here. We're talking about being made righteous. If you want to know what this word righteous means, the easiest way for you to always remember the word righteous or righteousness is narrow it down to the very root word, which is right, R-I-G-H-T. And so you can always say, I'm right with God. If I'm righteous, that means I'm right with God. I'm right with my papa. I'm right with Jesus. I'm right with my daddy. That's what righteousness means. It means to be declared right, righteous. When it says we have been justified through faith, it doesn't add anything. Religion will want to add stuff. It will say, you know, you're justified by faith plus going to church, <laughs> plus giving in the offering, plus going on mission trips, plus witnessing on the street corners, plus fasting, plus praying. You know, I was telling my wife about this last night, and, she, and I said, there are other, these are disciplines. And she said, you know, I don't like that word. I said, I know, I don't like that word either. They're, they're Christian disciplines, but this is not what makes us right with God. This is what we do as a result of being right with God. And so as we continually hear this message over and over in our hearts, it eventually begins to do something uh, in our hearts. The Bible says we have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the big deal I made about this word, therefore, a few months ago, is it literally translates as, for that reason. I preached a whole message about that, for that reason. For what reason? I can see what's happened. I can see who it's happened through, but I can't see why it's happened. See, when I see that we've been justified through faith, I can see how. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, I can see who. But where's the why? The why is in front of the therefore. It's before that. In Romans chapter 4, as we look at those scriptures again, verses 13 through 25, it says this, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. It was through faith, wasn't it? What law is he talking about? He's talking about the Mosaic law. He's talking about Moses' law, the Ten Commandments. And it wasn't because of that law that Abraham was justified. Abraham was justified simply the way we're justified by faith but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, 
Faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. That is a bold statement. He said, listen, if you're trying to get this any other way, he said, listen, that means nothing, and your promise is worthless. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we see the same thing when the Bible says, without faith it is impossible to please God. In verse 15 he says, because the law brings wrath. The law brings wrath. Not God's love, but the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. I never encourage people to go out of here and break laws. I tell you not to. But the Bible says right there, where there is no law, there is no transgression. So we can say, no law, no transgression. In other words, I don't have to be sin conscious. I'm not under the law. That's why when the Bible talks about Abraham, do you know he was from Genesis, the law didn't come till Exodus, the very next several hundred years later when Moses came. That's why Abraham was justified by faith. He wasn't under the Mosaic law. We can quit being sin conscious. It's liberating to know that I'm not under the law. It's impossible for the believer's status of righteousness to change based upon performance. It can't change based upon performance. It says, no law, there's no transgression. Meaning there's nothing that's been held against me. There's no record of anything that I've done, that I've done wrong in God's eyes. For the believer to believe that a transgression, something they've done wrong, changes their status in Christ is as ridiculous as asking Siri the question, what is zero divided by zero? Do you guys even know who Siri is? Probably don't even know who Siri is, do you? <laughs> Siri is, uh, if you have an iPhone, an iPad, or a touch iPod, you can touch one little button and Siri will start talking to you. She's called an intelligent personal uh, assistant and knowledge navigator is what they call her. If you ask Siri, what is zero divided by zero, Siri? Do you want to hear her answer? She says, imagine that you have zero cookies and you split them evenly among zero friends. How many cookies does each person get? See, she says, it doesn't make sense. And Cookie Monster is sad that there are no cookies and you are sad that you have no friends. Ridiculous answers are produced from ridiculous questions. No Cookie Monster, no cookies to steal, right? When a believer gets the revelation of righteousness through faith alone, because of God's gushing love, the devil will no longer be able to steal your peace. He'll no longer be able to steal your love. He'll no longer be able to steal your joy. When we were in uh, Louisville, Kentucky last week, we had two things that happened to us that have never happened before. You cannot talk me out of the righteousness that God's given me. I I'm established in that righteousness. I don't care what comes my way. You cannot talk me out of that. I understand I'm righteous based on what he's done through faith. And that's what the enemy wants to do. The first thing he wants to do is he wants to try to steal the fact that you believe you're righteous. He can never really take it from you, but if he can take it from your mind, he can still mess you up. It doesn't change the fact that you're still righteous. And so when he can't steal in that area, he tries to steal in other areas. Because he is the thief, so he has no choice every day to try to steal from you. So one day about noon, we decided to go to a restaurant. And so my wife put her purse in the trunk. We shut the trunk down, walked into the restaurant. And then while we're standing in line to order, my wife says, you know, would it be okay if we just didn't eat right now? I'm just really not that hungry. I said, no problem, let's go. When we walked back outside, our trunk was wide open. There was her purse sitting right there in that trunk. I'm like, what? We've got a car that's so smart that won't, if you have a set of keys to that car, it will not let you lock them in the car. 
And so when she shut the trunk and we walked away, truck popped right back up. Now, can you imagine all the people that would have been walking by that car and that purse with all her credit cards and all her personal information in there? I think it was just God saying, you know what? The thief is trying to steal out there. And my wife was just in tune enough to say, suddenly I'm not hungry. I'm just telling you, the enemy didn't like the fact that we came to Louisville, Kentucky with a message of hope and a message of God's love. And so as I thought about this message of love and I thought about some of the things I'm talking about, I picked up my wife's iPhone a couple of days ago and I hit that Siri button. Now she's not live, okay? She's a recording. But it's amazing when you hit that button, you can say, Siri, what is the population of Jerusalem? One second, she'll tell you. It's amazing what she knows. And so I hit that button. I said, Siri, do you love me? The first thing she said to me is, would you like for me to search the web for love? (laughs) And then she said, just kidding. I think even Siri realized that was the wrong answer. She said, just kidding. I said, Siri, do you love me? She said, I'm not allowed to. A third time I said, Siri, do you love me? She said, let's just say you have my utmost admiration. I said, Siri, do you love me? She said, let me get back to you on that. Like Siri's going to call me at midnight and go, I got the answer. It turns out I don't. So I was relentless. I said, Siri, do you love me? And the fifth time she said, you're looking for love in all the wrong places. This is what she's telling me. And I find out, I said, okay, I'm going to try this one more time. I said, Siri, do you love me? This one cracks me up. She said, look, a puppy. I'm like, what, a puppy? I mean, Siri was trying to get me to quit asking the question. She finally got tired of it and tried to, you know, that's what the enemy does. He just wants to distract you. And you, you bring a puppy in the room, you'll, you'll forget everything. You know, oh, look, a puppy. This is what Siri said, look, a puppy. <laughs> Siri does not care about personal relationships. She wants to give you information. God wants relationships. It's not about information with God. It's about relationship with God. It's about revelation with God. God wants to bring us into relationship with Him. God's love, it's attentive. His love is warm. His love is outrageous. His love is extravagant. His love is obvious. His love is immediate and ever-present. God's love was best demonstrated by Jesus going to the cross. And God's love is a gushing love. Continuing in Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 16, the Bible says, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed. Reduce that all down to, by grace, be guaranteed. That's all we need to know. It's by grace and it's guaranteed. Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed. To all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father, the Bible says, of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being those things that are not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and Sarah's womb was also in that condition. Really what he's saying there, there was nothing inside of Abraham in the physical. There was nothing inside of either one of them that could produce life. Nothing. 
And that's why Jesus said in John chapter 14, 6, He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And if I come and live inside of you, in the Old Testament He lived on you, the New Testament He lives in you, but if I come and get a hold of you, you're going to see that life is going to come. And my daddy's love is going to start to gush in your heart. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. And that's what Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 is all about, giving glory to God. Being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for me, also for you, also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in Him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now the very last scripture in Romans chapter 4, before we step into that therefore in chapter 5, is He, we're talking about Jesus now, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now you can see the why. Because Jesus had to pay the fine. He was the one that was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification so that we could be forgiven and so that we could always remain in this state of justification, remain in this state of righteousness. In Romans chapter 5, verse 2, you see these words, "...through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God." Verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. And I've read this enough times. I always see that as a big curveball. Everything was going fine. I'm justified by faith through my Lord Jesus Christ. Then all of a sudden it says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. And one thing you have to understand about that word sufferings right there, it's not talking about sickness. It's not talking about disease. And it's not talking about punishment. This particular verse is talking about persecution. And the Bible says, yea, that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. He's talking about persecution there. Last month at Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, Pastor Joel Osteen, he stepped out there and only been speaking for a couple of minutes, and a heckler popped up in the crowd, shouting to Joel Osteen, if you're a liar, you're a fake, and you're a phony. Well, the security team had to come over and get this man and help him walk out of the church. The minute that guy was gone, a second guy popped up and started heckling Joel Osteen. Another security team had to come get him and take him out. A third guy, a fourth guy, a fifth guy. You just thought it was never going to end. But you know what Joel did? Joel just continued to stand there and preach about the love of God and the grace of God and hold up his Bible and say, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. That's the attitude we've got to have. You see, this man stood up and wanted to preach about God's gushing love. He wanted to preach about the goodness of God and the grace of God. That is Joel's message all the time, one right after the other, after the other. He gets accused of, why don't you preach about the law? What's there to preach about? The law can't do anything for you. You need to know how much God loves you, how much His grace is on your life. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4 says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Now, hope does not put us to shame, because... God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. God did it. God poured out this love. The word poured out there is an amazing word. In the King James, I think it says shed abroad. God's love has been shed abroad. But the word poured out there is the actual uh, Greek word, ekeo. 
It means to distribute largely or to gush. And as I was reading that, that's where the inspiration and the title of this message came from when I saw what kind of love this is. I said, well, God, this is gushing love, isn't it? He said, yeah, this is gushing love. That's the name of your message, by the way, son. I thought, God, what awesome love. So that scripture literally reads, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been gushing into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. When God saved us, He didn't sprinkle His love. When God saved us, He didn't drip His love. It was a poured out love. It was a gushing love. It was a gushing love. It was a shed abroad love. He held nothing back. Have you ever tried to drink out of a garden hose? Can you just imagine, stick that whole garden hose in your mouth one time and turn that spigot wide open? You'll have much more water coming out than you can take in. That is God's love. Except it would be more like a fire hose. It's a gushing love. And then I looked over in Isaiah chapter 48 verse 21. This is Isaiah talking about what happened in the wilderness when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow from them from the rock. Let's stop for a second. Did you notice he didn't say he made water flow from a rock? He didn't make water flow from some rock. He made water flow from the rock, and the word the is a definite article. It means the one and only, and this is a type and shadow of Christ. The Bible says he made water flow from the rock. He says he split the rock and water, watch this, gushed out. Now we know this is talking about Christ, and I'll show you that in a couple of minutes here. And then when you look at Psalm chapter 105, verse 41, it corroborates exactly what Isaiah said in chapter 48, verse 21. The Bible says, He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed like a river in the desert. What the Lord did is, I read that scripture, He took me right to the base of the cross during the crucifixion. I could just kind of see that in my heart. And as you know the story, the three men, you know, Jesus in the middle, two thieves crucified, one on each side of him. And at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, they came by to break the legs of the men to hasten their death, to make it more quickly. Jesus had just died a couple of minutes before that. And so, bang on the one thief's legs, and it hastened death. The other one, but when it came to Jesus, the Bible says he had, he had already given up the ghost, he was already dead. And so that Roman soldier took his spear and thrust it up and through the side. Their point of entry when they would come up through the side is they were looking to go right up into the heart, is what they would do. And when I saw that in here, when the Bible says, He opened the rock. He opened the rock. This was one last attempt. Christ was already dead at that point. This was one last attempt to kill the bride of Christ. Because the bride of Christ comes from Jesus' side. When Eve was taken from the side of Adam, God had to put Adam to sleep. All this was was a type and shadow of Christ. If you cut somebody, it's not atypical to have blood come out, right? I mean, you would expect blood to come out. But you wouldn't expect water to come out. That part you wouldn't get. And so Psalm 105, verse 21, is actually, I believe, fulfilling the prophecy of what was said about the rock in Moses' day. The Bible says, Water gushed out when Christ was open, the rock of my salvation when He was open, water and blood gushed out. And it says it flowed like a river in the desert. Desert is just simply the dry places. And God is saying, listen, if there's a dry place anywhere in your life, 
There's a place where you feel empty. There's a place where you feel dry. He's saying, listen, there's an ample supply of my love, and my love can overwhelm that area. My love can come out gushing and take care of any situation you've got. When we look at the original story in Exodus chapter 17, it says the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim. I want you to know something. We don't just camp in Christ. We dwell in Christ. All they could do is camp. When I think about camping, you're thinking about maybe taking a little weekend trip. We don't camp in Christ. We dwell in Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. So all this keeps connecting you back to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And the Bible says they camped at Rephidim. Rephidim literally means the place of rest. I want to tell you something. You've got to get this in your heart, that you're always in a place of rest with Christ. You see, Rephidim was just a place they stopped at. They had to keep moving on. But we don't move on. The Bible says that Christ, when He comes and lives in us, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from His. There was no water for these people to drink, though. So what happened is they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up here out of Egypt to make us and the children and the livestock die of thirst? They are totally misrepresenting Moses. That is not why Moses brought them out there. And sometimes we, we've just got to get a hold of it. The enemy wants you to believe that God is doing this to you. God did this to you. No, it, God didn't do that. Moses had everything good planned for them. He had everything good in mind for them. Then Moses cried out to the Lord. He's even praying to the Lord for, on their behalf. What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff in which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock. Again, this is a prophetic picture of Christ. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 37 and verse 38, when he was at the Feast of the Tabernacles just before his crucifixion, the Bible says that Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, what? Out of his belly are going to flow rivers of living water. Talking about God's gushing love. That's who the Holy Spirit is. He's God's gush. He's the ambassador of God's gushing love. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. What do you suppose came out of that rock? It was water, wasn't it? It didn't just trickle out. You can't water three million people and all their livestock with a $10 garden hose from Walmart. The Bible says the cascading fountains of the deep broke forth and there was a gushing water that was coming out of the rock. I'm telling you, everything Christ does, there's this gushing love and grace and mercy and goodness coming out of my Savior. Oh, it makes me happy on the inside. Why did God give them water? They're grumbling. They're complaining. They want to hang Moses up. Why? They want to stone him. It wasn't because of their character. It wasn't because of their good conduct, friends. It was because God's a good God. It was because of God's gushing love. You say, Mark, can you prove in the New Testament that that rock they're talking about in the Old Testament is Christ? 
Friends, let me read the scriptures for you and you tell me if this is it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-4. through 4. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the same cloud. What cloud was that? That was the cloud that they followed by day. They followed a pillar of fire by night. They were all under the same cloud. And they all passed through the same sea. That's the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. Did you see how God hid him in a rock? The rock of ages, the rock of our salvation is hid in a rock. He's a type and shadow because he can't be revealed yet in his, all of his fullness. He has to come to earth and die as a man first. But God was trying to give us little snapshots. If you just look here, you can see this is my son. I want to tell you something. God's love is ubiquitous. It is everywhere, all over the Bible. I don't care if you start in Genesis and end in Revelation. You see nothing but the love of God shed abroad. And then Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, the Bible says, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own gushing love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Go back to verse 6. It says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless. That word powerless comes from the Greek word asthenes. Asthenes. I'm going to tell you what it means. It means sick. While we were still sick, Christ died for us. You see this word used in the story of Lazarus. In John chapter 11. And the Bible says in John chapter 11 verse 3 that they sent word to Jesus, the one you love is sick. That is the word astheneho. It's the same Greek word used in a verb. Do you see what God is saying? We were in a sick condition. That's why he died for us is because we were sick. We couldn't doctor ourselves back to health. And Jesus had to come and say, I can make you well. I can make you well. Let's start on the inside, though, and work our way to the outside. Doctors want to start on the outside and work their way in. Jesus said, no, let's start on the inside and work our way out. Just take my daddy's gushing love and get it flowing in your heart, and you're going to find you can be well. You can be healthy. You can be vibrant. Oh, man. A baby girl was born to Prince Albert and Queen Victoria on April 25th of 1843. She was christened as Alice Maud Mary in the private chapel at Buckingham Palace. She later became known as Princess Alice of the United Kingdom. Alice was 18 years old when her father, Prince Albert, was diagnosed with typhoid fever in early December of 1861. Alice nursed him until his death on December 14th of that year. Conflict took its toll on the royal family, and when Princess Alice was married, her own mother, Queen Victoria, described the event as more of a funeral than a wedding. Did you see the conflict that's happening in the family now? Alice was a prolific uh, patron of women's causes and uh, showed an interest in nursing. She devoted much of her time to the management of field hospitals. In 1877, Alice became Grand Duchess upon the ascension of her husband in 1878, diphtheria infected the Hessian court. Tragedy befell Alice on May 29, 1873, when her two-year-old son, Fritty, died after falling from a 20-foot window. After Fritty's death, Alice attached herself more closely to her only surviving son, Ernest, and her newborn daughter, Marie. 
1875, she resumed her public duties, including fundraising, medical, and social work, which had held her interest. In November of 1878, the Grand Ducal household fell ill with diphtheria. Alice's eldest daughter, Victoria, was the first to fall ill, complaining of a stiff neck in the evening of November 5th. Diphtheria was diagnosed the following morning, and soon the disease spread to Alice's children. Her husband, Louis, became infected shortly thereafter. Elizabeth was the only child that was not infected because she had sent her away to live with Prince Charles for a while. Alice's four-year-old daughter, Marie, became seriously ill on November 15th, and Alice was called to her bedside. However, she was too late. Marie had taken her final breath. She was distraught. Writing to Queen Victoria, her own mother, she said, the pain is beyond words. For several weeks, Alice kept the news of Marie's death secret from her own children. But she finally, sometime later, ended up telling her 10-year-old son, Ernest, sometime in early December of that year. His reaction was even worse than what she had anticipated, and at first he refused to believe it. And as he sat up in his bed crying, Alice broke her rule about physical contact with the ill, and she gave her son a kiss. At first, however, Alice did not fall ill. However, by Saturday, December 14th, the very anniversary of her father's death, she became seriously ill with the diphtheria caught from her son. She fell unconscious at 2.30 a.m. and just after 8.30 a.m. went to be with the Lord. Her last words that she wrote down was, Dear Papa. Without thinking of herself, the mother tenderly kissed her son. The one kiss, the one kiss that would ultimately cost her her own life. Real love, God's gushing love, forgets self. Real love knows no danger. Real love doesn't hold anything back. I couldn't help but thank God, that gushing love that you have for us was able to reach out and kiss us when we were sick. What an amazing thing. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says that. While we were sick, God, gushing love, came on the scene. Wow. The difference is, though, is we didn't infect God. God infected us. <laughs> he infected us with His love. And I tell you what, I'd hate to be a minister anywhere in this world without letting the love of God come through. But that would be a lot of work. That would be a lot of work. The Bible says in Song of Solomon in chapter 8, verse 7, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. Friends, there's one way to describe that kind of love. It's God's gushing love. When I said yes to Jesus on August 7th of 1995, you know what I found? That very first night, I found that a river of love was flowing from my belly. And it has never quit flowing. I felt his river flow in, his gushing love come in, and I just said, oh, Daddy, how awesome is this love? How amazing is this love? And that gushing love has been flowing ever since. Father, I want to thank you for your goodness and your grace. I want to thank you, Father, that there's no end to this supply 
of this love that you have for us. Father, if we can get this message down that when we were sick, when we were really, really sick, when we couldn't do anything to bring life to ourselves, Jesus came forth. Jesus came forth and he said, Papa, I'll die in their place. And Daddy, if I die, out of my belly is going to flow rivers of living water and it's going to flow from my belly into their belly. And Father, it's going to be a river of your gushing love. Daddy, I want to thank you, Father, for this gushing love, this wonderful message of we are righteous with you. We are always in right standing with you, Daddy. Not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. And Father, we don't have to be afraid to kiss the sick. We don't have to be afraid to put our arms around the sick people of this world, the people that are powerless to save themselves. We can put our arms around them. We can put our words around them, and we can talk about your gushing love. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen.